Okay, it's 1.29, so I'll take that extra little bit of time to make a housekeeping announcement. I was reminded, for those of you who will be flying out of Boston, uh, you can print out your boarding pass at zero price uh, in the business center if you want to do that. So the price is zero. It's not free, as we uh, constantly emphasize, but the price is zero. So you can take advantage of that. And now, to start us off, 11 seconds early, <laughs> Professor Meyer. Good afternoon, welcome back. Thank you again for being here. So I'm going to close out all the ideas that we discussed with um, some, mainly with examples of specific policies and how libertarians should think about that. So just to review a teeny bit before we get there, uh, consequentialism, economics, is one approach to evaluating government. And I've argued that consequentialism suggests that most interventions do more harm than good, they have the wrong goals, they're ineffective, they have unintended consequences, uh, and so on. So based on consequentialism, small government is better on both efficiency and equity grounds for broad ways of thinking about or defining equity. Now I want to discuss a bunch of specific issues. I think that first just illustrates more concretely what I've been talking about. It also should help illustrate both some strengths and some weaknesses of the consequential approach. And I'm going to try to bring in several themes and going across a bunch of different topics to suggest that this approach, okay, one, tries to be consistent, two, that it tries to go back to basics and ask the most fundamental question you could ask first. May not be the end of the story, but it's a good place to start. Uh, in the second half, roughly, I'm going to talk about policies that I think libertarians are maybe wrong about, maybe confused about, or more likely just a little too confident about. The world is just kind of uncertain, so we should be more humble. Okay? And I will repeat the themes that we've had already about efficiency versus equity, about state versus federal, and in particular also about uh, the polarization. Okay, So these are the four policy issues I want to talk about that I will call easy cases. Okay? Some of you may disagree. <laughs> Some of you may disagree, but these are ones that to me, okay, at least many aspects of these issues are no-brainers. Okay, so most of my research for the last 25 years has been about drug prohibition versus drug legalization, so this one uh, is near and dear to my heart. So first of all, the goal is at a minimum not compelling. I think a lot of libertarians would say the goal makes no sense at all. We shouldn't interfere in anybody's private decision to use any substance activity, no matter how dangerous it might be, whether or not that person is well-informed of the risks or not. It's just not our business, in particular not the government's business, uh, to interfere with that. But even being a little bit less uber-libertarian, you could say we're trying to keep people from making a private decision. We know that lots of people are going to make reasonable decisions about it. At best, we'd be trying to reduce drug use or alcohol or other kinds of substance use from people who are maybe making a mistake. So it's not a great convincing policy from the get-go. Second, we have tons of evidence that it's not especially effective in achieving its stated goal. It's a little surprising, but over and over again, looking at alcohol prohibition, prohibitions against prostitution or gambling or drugs, marijuana, opioids, on and on and on, it's very hard to find evidence that the prohibitions actually reduce consumption of the prohibited substance. Okay? Same would be true about 
trying to keep guns away from people with prohibitions. Those don't seem to be very effective at their stated goal either. So that doesn't make a good case for drug prohibition. And last, but certainly not least, even if you think the goal was compelling, even if you want to hang your hat on the small amount of effectiveness that one can find in the literature, drug prohibition has a broad range of unintended and negative consequences. It generates violence by creating a black market where disputes are resolved by guns instead of with lawyers. It generates other kinds of crime because the elevated drug prices encourage people to engage in more income-generating crimes, such as theft or prostitution. It generates corruption because the people who have been driven underground try to influence policymakers, judges, police, et cetera, through bribes rather than through uh, lobbying or campaign ballot initiatives. Drug prohibition leads to restrictions on medicinal use, which seem to be seriously harmful for significant numbers of people who would benefit from those restricted uh, drugs. It generates racial, racial profiling because it's almost impossible to think about trying to enforce some kind of broad prohibition okay, without targeting the groups that you think, that you assert, are more likely to be using those substances. Of course, in America, that's meant African Americans and Hispanics. They're caught by a, by a stop and frisk and other sorts of policies, so exacerbates racial tensions, exacerbates other questions of civil liberties because we use techniques like no-knock warrants and uh, seizing people's property under asset forfeiture laws and the like. There are lots of effects on other countries because we generate crime, violence, corruption in there, in those places, in addition to the United States. And you can go on and on with even more things. We breed disrespect for the law by having drug prohibition, as I've argued elsewhere. So to me, this one's really, really simple. The Iraq invasion. So here I put a question mark on whether the goal is compelling. Initially, the goal was Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. Now, I don't think that was actually a, ever a convincing goal, even if we knew it was true for 100%, because Iraq didn't have the incentive to use those WMD against the United States or, if you want to bring in allies, or against Israel, because it should have done the calculation that the second it actually used them, then the U.S. would have invaded and wiped it out. Okay? So, it, forgive the uh, jargon, it was not subgame perfect, it was not sensible game theory for them ever to have used those weapons, even if they had them. The evidence that they had them was always weak. Okay? It was pretty obvious from the get-go that there was a lot of spinning going on. Okay? All of these weapons inspectors were telling the whole world, no, they don't have the WMD. The UN weapons inspection teams can't find them, and they've looked really hard. Then, of course, the goals changed. It was nation-building. It was making the Middle East safe for democracy and all those other things which are, again, not compelling because there is no history of rich, powerful countries installing democracy by invading okay, a country with a substantially different culture and trying to impose it at the force of a gun. So the goal was a problem. Okay? We should have known it was likely to be ineffective because there was no history of effective actions like the one we were undertaking in Iraq. Okay? And we should have been aware of the potential for huge okay, unintended consequences. First, there was the direct expenditure, and despite the promises that we were going to be in and out in six months, anybody who's observed how long we've been in Korea and all sorts of other countries around the world should realize it was likely we were going to be there for many years, maybe forever. So far, it looks as though we will have troops in Korea forever. We should have thought about the fact that we would breed resentment of the U.S. and of the West 
by invading and occupying Iraq. So rather than reducing the demand for terrorism, okay, we would increase the demand for terrorism against the U.S. because one of the key things the terrorists don't like about the U.S. is that we're in their countries, telling them how to run their countries. We also more broadly in the Slippery Slopes Department, by invading Iraq, legitimize still other invasions, okay, and that should have been included as a cost. Okay? So to me, that was also uh, a no-brainer. Now, it's interesting to talk about Iraq versus Afghanistan. Remember, Afghanistan was about a year and a half before Iraq, and apparently uh, bin Laden and al-Qaeda okay, went to Afghanistan, had been training in Afghanistan, and were hiding in the hills outside Tora Bora in Afghanistan when the attack occurred on 9-11. And the U.S. invaded Afghanistan to go after bin Laden. That certainly seemed to lots of people, to libertarians included, sort of plausibly self-defense of the kind that libertarians do defend. We had been attacked. Apparently, the evidence was clear as to who had attacked us. Okay? And so going after those people you know, maybe made some sense. But even that, we probably should have realized we might not actually catch them. Okay? We might not catch them quickly. We might run into the problem that they would go into Pakistan, and we wouldn't want to follow them into Pakistan because of Pakistan's sovereignty and because they were allegedly an ally in the war on terror. And we might get embroiled in trying to create peace in Afghanistan after having disrupted it and still be in Afghanistan for 10 or 15 years after the invasion. And lo and behold, we are. So maybe even the invasion of Afghanistan didn't make sense, even though it's plausibly more related to a legitimate national defense concern. OK, put same-sex marriage here because I, it helps illustrate the very fundamental back-to-basics approach that I think consequentialism and libertarianism generally sort of goes for. Before we try to settle exactly what kinds of, government, of marriage governments should supply, we should ask whether government should be in the marriage business at all. Libertarian answer is no. There's no compelling reason why government should supply this particular contract that bundles together contractual relations about division of property, about custodianship of children, about inheritances, and miscellaneous other things into one given rubber stamp sort of contract. Why not just have the government have some default policies about what it does if two people are living in the same living space, decide to set to part ways, and there's a dispute about who owns what? Why not have a simple default about who are the legal guardians of children, okay, which might be only the biological mother, it might be both biological mother and father, doesn't really matter too much what it is so long as it's something reasonable, and enforce that, because of course we have to enforce that, have that anyway, because some kids are born out of marriage no matter what. We can have simple default rules about inheritances. Here's an example. If you die with a will, the government will enforce your will, subject to usual concerns about contracts not being too complicated, blah, blah, blah. If you die without a will, the government takes it all. Really simple, clean. Doesn't ever mention the word marriage or civil union or anything like that. So there was no reason for government to get into the marriage business other than to try to control people. And had we taken that view, we would have never had any controversy about same-sex marriage. Okay? So you might then say, well, too bad, that ship sailed. We're stuck. Government is in the marriage business. Okay? In that case, the answer seems very clear, and this is almost exactly the Supreme Court's reasoning. Providing this contract and enforcing it is supplying, is using resources for courts and lawyers and so on. If the government is going to do that, it should be doing it for everyone. There is no legitimate basis to discriminate against some people relative to others if the government's providing this service. Okay? And so we should get the outcome that we indeed got 
uh, under Obergefell. Redistribution. So I'm not going to take a strong stand on the overall bottom line on this, but there's some things that I think okay, we can say with a lot of confidence. Okay? First, okay, we can say that the different possible goals of alleviating poverty versus just trying to reduce inequality generally, okay, for libertarians, the only one of those that seems convincing is alleviating poverty. The whole idea that we're going to redistribute from richer people to poorer people, to less rich people across the spectrum, is mainly jealousy, is mainly just trying to take money away from people who have it to give it to people who don't, okay? And we are not sympathetic to that at all. If you are actually trying to help people who are genuinely down in their luck, who genuinely can't easily take care of themselves, that's at least a compassionate, sort of reasonable sort of motivation, okay? And the, likewise, the veil of ignorance model that I discussed last time is a plausible motivation. We should agree that it's important to talk not just about whether we redistribute, but about how much. Okay? Imagine that we just had a really, really simple negative income tax, which guaranteed every single person $500 a year. As libertarians, you might still vote against that, but you wouldn't get very exercised about that either, assuming we ignore slippery slopes for the moment. Okay? But if you add up all the spending we currently do, for Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, disability, unemployment insurance, yada, yada, all through the whole list, and divided by the number of people in the poorest 10% of the population, you get $70,000 per person. That's a pretty generous negative income tax. Of course, a lot of it would be going, much more would go to people who are poor. It would all go to people who are low income, whereas right now, Social Security and Medicare are mainly going to middle class people and upper income people. Okay, so that would be very different. So we have to talk about not just whether to have redistribution, we have to upfront say whether we think the current system is too generous or not. I think most libertarians would say it's far too generous. We can certainly take a strong stand on how we redistribute. Should it be cash? Should it be a voucher? Or should it be in kind? I think libertarians have a clear ranking. In kind is the worst because it's the least useful to the people who receive it. Okay? A voucher is more flexible. You don't want to spend it on what the voucher is for. You can probably find a black market in which you can trade your voucher for cash. And cash is, of course, the most flexible. So you're actually trying to help people, and you're not going to be paternalistic about what they spend their money on to try to make their own lives better. And you think we should redistribute, give them cash, and stop trying to interfere uh, in all the other markets. Okay? Last, I think something we should, as libertarians, agree, ah, sorry, agree on quite strenuously is no federal redistribution, but maybe not take a strong stand okay, on state-level redistribution. Imagine that the only policies trying to redistribute were relatively stingy state-level negative income taxes, or some, right now they're being called uh, guaranteed basic incomes. I think of them the same way. The standard argument against leaving it to the states is each state would race to the bottom and try to offer the least generous possible social safety net, and we'd have hardly anything. Okay? Maybe, except what we've observed is redistribution getting more and more generous, extending to more and more people, more and more into the middle class. So that competition between states and that race to the bottom is a good counterweight to the tendency of redistribution and all sorts of other policies to expand too much. So if we actually had that situation, just relatively modest state-level negative income taxes, I would bet a reasonable fraction of libertarians would be okay with that. Maybe they wouldn't suggest it or try to get it created if it didn't exist, but I don't think that it's obviously sort of a terrible idea. Okay? The big question, of course, is still the slippery slopes issue. 
Okay, so those four were meant to be say some things I think are sort of clear and easy and that libertarians could sort of easily agree upon and also just illustrate some of the aspects of the reasoning I've talked about so far. Now these are the harder cases in different ways. Okay? Say different sorts of things about each of these four. And then I have a much longer list that I'll talk about more briefly uh, to the extent that I still have time. Okay, so monetary policy. Libertarians seem to generally hate central banks. When I read Ron Paul's book, And the Fed, I came away thinking that the Fed had been responsible for everything bad that's happened in the universe, okay, even before 1914 when the Fed was created, independent of whether it has anything to do with monetary policy. The fact that my teenage son left his wet towel on the floor of his bedroom, that was somehow the Fed's fault. Okay? So libertarians really, really hate central banks. And we can understand why they hate central banks, because it's a group of people that are not elected, doesn't mean they're zero accountable because they could be removed, their charters could be changed by the Congress, but they're not very accountable in the short to medium run. And they have a potential to have a big effect on people's lives by generating a lot or a little inflation, by generating recessions and so forth. Okay? And libertarians go from those perfectly reasonable observations to saying we should have a gold standard. Okay? Well, that seems to me pretty unconvincing. First, let's take a quick look at a bit of evidence. If you compare the pre-1914 period in the US, when we had roughly a classical gold standard, to the period since World War II, when we've had basically the modern Fed, okay, and look at the average rate of growth of inflation, of the price level, that is inflation, you will see that inflation has been higher under the Fed. That's undisputable. However, as an economist, and I hope as a non-economist, you should agree that we don't care about the rate of inflation conditional on the behavior of output. We care about inflation because we think high or volatile or unpredictable inflation might make the economy less efficient. But if we are also looking at the behavior of output and we find that we have good output performance despite high inflation, that high output performance is what we should care about. So what has been output performance under those two periods, under the pre-Fed gold standard or the post-World War II Fed, the average rate of growth of output has been higher under the post-World World War II Fed. The variability of output, so the degree to which we've had business cycles and ups and downs, has been lower under the post-World War II Fed. So you can think of a million variables you would like to control for as well. You can think of lots of reasons why that simple comparison isn't convincing by itself. Nevertheless, there is not a single piece of evidence that I've seen that says economic performance was actually better under the gold standard than it's been under the Fed. So that should give us pause about being such fans of the gold standard. Okay? Second, gold standard is a big government system. The gold standard is not completely decentralized production and establishment of money. The gold standard is the central government saying exactly what constitutes money and pegging a particular price in the economy, the price of gold relative to currency. Just as the Fed, or central banks generally, are pegging a different price in the economy, they're pegging the short-term interest rate, making it go up and making it go down. Central banks, excuse me, economies with a gold standard can cause enormous monetary uncertainty by abandoning their gold standards or by devaluing, the, changing the rate at which they convert gold to other money and so on, and they've historically done it all you know, multiple times, famously at the beginning of World War I in the US and, and major economies in Europe. 
Okay? So there's no a priori reason to think that gold is better than a central bank. They are both big government schemes for controlling the stock uh, of money. Okay? Third, government has to have some role in money, no matter how much you might dislike it, if you think you're a libertarian but not an anarchist. If you want to say, I'm an anarchist, we should have zero government, zero expenditure. Well, then you can logically say we should have zero tax revenue. And then you can say the government certainly doesn't need to take a position on money in any way, shape, or form. But let's say you're a very small government libertarian, but not a zero government libertarian. So there's going to be a small national defense, a few federal courts, miscellaneous other stuff. Then you have to raise the tax revenue to pay for that. Then you have to decide, well, what constitutes paying your taxes? Can you show up at the IRS office with a sack of potatoes? Can you show up with gold coins? Can you show up with, you know, the re with reals? Can you show up with yuan? They're going to take a stand. The IRS is going to say, these are the things that we consider legitimate payment of the taxes that you owe. The second it does that, it's determined what the default money is in the economy. Everything else will get defined relative to that default, which means that if the government monkeys around with whatever it said was the default, it will generate uncertainty and volatility or inflation and so on. So there is some negative. But we just can't logically get away from the fact that there's going to be some federal government role in determining the money supply. Last point on monetary policy is very common to hear libertarians say, we want a Fed, if we have a Fed, that chooses a rule rather than just in a discretionary way decide the economy's heating up a little bit too much and we should raise interest rates or it's starting to recede so we should lower interest rates, blah, blah, blah. Instead, we have some formula that says the federal funds rate that the Fed targets depends on the rate of unemployment, the rate of inflation, a couple other things, and it's totally mechanical, okay, and a monkey could do it. Okay? It will never happen. First, the central bank can always say, oh, we realize we have the wrong rule. We're going to change the rule. That's sort of like it's just abandoning your gold standard. Oh, we decided we didn't like the gold standard at the current uh, parity, so we're going to change it. Okay? Second, there are 20 different unemployment rates you could put in that rule. Okay? You can monkey around with that to get whatever answer you want. There are 20 different ways that are all reasonable of measuring the inflation rate. By choosing just the right one, you could get whatever answer you wanted for the interest rate. Is it the unemployment rate last month or three months ago or the average over six months? Rules are not going to be actual rules. They're going to be full of contamination and discretion. So that argument seems like it's comparing two things which are not different. We have to accept that if the central, federal government is in charge of money, it's in charge of money, and it will exercise discretion some of the time. And the better debate is, when do we think it's useful to engage in that discretion? Um, OK, skip that last point in the interest of time. Climate policy. So here's one where I think we're not singing quite the right song, although what Lynn said earlier is exactly what sort of I, I agree with. I'm going to sort of push uh, maybe even harder. Okay? Carbon fuels allegedly warming the planet. That's, okay, sorry, that's allegedly bad. Now, the fact that it's bad for the planet is less obvious than everybody assumes. Just as an example, I just read in the newspaper a few weeks ago that there's going to be ships going from Korea and Japan through the northern route, through the Arctic, and making their way to Russian ports because there's less ice and it's now navigable. So that's a benefit. That's a good thing of warming if, in fact, the warming led to the melting of enough ice that that's possible. And more broadly, some places that can't grow wheat now, northern Canada, 
will be able to grow wheat if the temperature is a few degrees warmer. So as a sort of an aside, I'm not sure I buy that it's clearly bad for the world if the planet warms up somewhat. But take that as a given for today. Okay? The proposed solution is revenue neutral carbon tax okay, and repeal of existing command and control. So let's imagine you believed that Congress would really do that. Okay? So by revenue neutral, we mean we're going to lower some other tax enough that the total amount of revenue the federal government collects is basically the same before and after institution of the carbon tax. Particular, we're going to lower tax rates that are themselves really bad, that are highly distorting tax rates, like those on the location of capital via the corporate income tax, high marginal tax rates on personal income, probably a few other examples. And we're going to get rid of subsidies for green energy. We're going to get rid of energy efficiency standards for appliances. We're going to get rid of uh, fuel efficiency standards for cars. All of that's gone. The world is a much, much simpler place. The only thing that's different is lower income and corporate income tax rates, a higher carbon tax rate, so you pay more for gasoline and heating oil and so on. The thing to realize is if you did that, that would be a pretty defensible thing to do even if there were no global warming. Why? Because the burning of fossil fuel is generating pollution, standard air pollution that comes out of your car or your smokestack if you burn wood or anything else. Okay? Also, although it's not the best way to reduce it, okay, a higher fuel tax would reduce congestion on crowded highways. The best way to address that would be with peak load pricing of toll roads. But a higher carbon tax that makes gasoline more expensive would help reduce congestion. There's an economics paper from about 10 years ago that makes a very compelling case that there are significant externalities at current tax rates that are not being priced in from the use of, fossil fuel, of energy broadly. And so a somewhat higher price of energy is plausibly defensible whether or not you believe any of the global warming stuff. In particular, we might get out of this package of things elimination of a bunch of goofy policies which are utterly ineffective and just reward crony capitalists and lower tax rates on some things which are good things that we want people to engage in like savings and earning income and so on. So if you believed that you could really do that, it would be defensible. Now in practice, okay, as Lynn sort of highlighted with her examples from Washington State, okay, we suspect that the people who want the carbon tax don't want it to be revenue neutral. They want it as an excuse for raising more revenue. Okay, so I would, it would take me a long time to sign off on some proposed package that would go through Congress along these lines. But if we're going to argue in a coherent way, we have to accept that in principle, doing this might be a reasonable, a defensible, or at least not a very bad uh, policy change. Uh, OK. Different sort of hard case that's useful to think about is abortion policy. Libertarianism generally, at least as fined by Cato, okay, doesn't take a stand. Okay? Cato has no official policy. Some libertarians, of course, do. Uh, and Rand famously was very strongly sort of pro-choice. Okay? Broadly, some libertarians will describe themselves as pro-choice, some as pro-life. Okay? Um, I think it's a hard issue to resolve just by talking about rights. So this is meant to be partially an illustration of why thinking about consequences can be useful. Okay? Um, if you take into account consequential considerations, you get a bunch of other factors that you want to talk about. Okay? If we do it in terms of rights, then we have to know when life begins. That means we have to define what life is. 
That's really messy. It's subject to the resources that are available to the mother for medical care because if you have no medical access, a premature baby at 25 weeks is, is not going to be viable. If you have access to lots of expenditure and good health care, it might be viable. So which in, does life begin at a different point in those two cases? Um, but based on consequences, we would recognize that bans on abortion are difficult to enforce. There's lots of evidence that just like all sorts of other prohibitions, abortion bans are not very effective. People go to other states, other countries, use other methods that are they're harder to detect or enforce. Okay? Most importantly, I would say, thinking about consequences of an abortion ban, it creates a precedent and unleashes the possibility of slippery slopes because it says the government has the right to interfere with something that goes inside my own skin, inside my body. And so if the government can interfere with an abortion decision, a woman's abortion decision, then what else can it interfere about? Can it tell you that you can't drink during pregnancy because it might be harming a future person? In fact, that's happened repeatedly over the last several decades in the US. You can't use drugs. You can, in fact, be jailed and forced to have your child in prison because you were found to have been using marijuana during pregnancy. I think libertarians would think that was a sort of awkward precedent to lead to bad places. More broadly, what about reading books? Okay? Some books might put evil thoughts in your head, and the government might think to protect you and protect others you would talk to, it should not let you read certain things if it can control what goes on in your own brain inside your own body. So thinking about all the consequences of bans on abortion, to me, nudges one in favor okay, of being pro-choice. Okay? I'm not saying that's definitive in any way, but it's an illustration of a perspective I've tried to uh, illustrate. Okay? Okay, so last topic under interesting things to discuss just to illustrate everything. Anti-discrimination laws, I mean labor market, housing, laws against uh, that ban discrimination on the basis of race, gender, sexual preference, all those sorts of things. Okay? Um, they seem like an easy case on rights grounds. Why? Because I own my business, I should be able to hire whomever I want, sell to whomever I want. Any law that says I, can't, I have to hire uh, proportionally minorities versus not, men versus women, anything like that, is infringing on my rights to use my private property okay, as I see fit. Um, I think consequentialism also opposes anti-discrimination laws. Okay? First, we argue that markets do a reasonable job of reducing discrimination. Okay? Under competition, okay, as long as there's some non-biased, non-discriminating employers in a given industry, if they see that the market is not hiring, say, African-Americans, okay, those African-Americans will be available at a lower wage. The non-discriminating employers will hire those people and make more profits than the employers that discriminate by only hiring whites. Okay, and they will then drive the discriminating employers out of business. And in the equilibrium, the wages of whites and blacks should be the same, okay, just as a result of market forces. So that's one consequence that's important to think about. And there's plenty of evidence. Okay, to support that, systematic evidence from economists and others. The standard illustration okay, is the Jackie Robinson effect. Jackie Robinson was an African-American baseball player. He was playing in the Negro Leagues in the early 1950s. Major League Baseball had no African-Americans. And one owner, partially for benevolent reasons and partially for profit reasons, okay, hired Jackie Robinson. And within a decade, decade and a half, every major league sport was highly integrated because you had to hire African-Americans if you were going to compete on the athletic field. 
We should also recognize in terms of consequences imposing these laws that a lot of discrimination is due to governments, not to markets. Apartheid was government discrimination. Uh, Jim Crow laws were government discrimination. Many, many, many other examples. And these laws have unintended consequences in the form of generating resentment, polarization, and reinforcing negative stereotypes, okay, and that might make them not worth having, okay, despite the fact that they have an understandable, perhaps even a noble, goal. But they are, of course, a hard thing for libertarians, because the second you say you're against the Civil Rights Act, okay, almost everything you've said up to that point okay, is going to be dismissed. And so ideally, we come up with some way to finesse that, but I don't know what the way is. Okay? It's clearly a hard issue for libertarians. Um, okay, now I'm going to put a bunch of other things up. I have about 13 minutes. I'm going to talk about pick and choose between these um, to, just to illustrate some other things that I think will be interesting. So one of my pet peeves is the first one, is speech codes. Okay? Pet peeve because that issue comes up for college campuses all the time. And lots of libertarians, conservatives, are outraged that Harvard, Yale, Stanford, et cetera, are very lefty, okay? and that they may have some policies about affirmative action or policies about what you can say on campus or insist that there be trigger warnings if anything sensitive is going to be spoken on campus okay, that libertarians tend to find annoying or offensive. But a lot of them are making a mistake in the way they talk about it because libertarians, we think that the market gets to do what the market wants to do. Which are the schools that are hardest to get into? The ones that are the most lefty, the ones that have the most affirmative action, the ones that have all these crazy speech codes. So our view as libertarians should be, assuming these are all private schools for the moment, they can do whatever they want. And if that's what the market wants, that's what the market wants. People want to buy rum, raisin, ice cream. They may be nuts, okay, because raisins are evil, but that's their decision, to buy whatever is in the marketplace that they like. So we should be against a government policy which oppose, imposes speech codes or anything like that. We should be concerned about government policies which impose affirmative action rules on private universities, maybe even on when they're imposed on public universities. But campuses want to have crazy policies about speech codes or anything else. That's their decision. That's the true libertarian perspective. Um, another thing I've heard libertarians People I think of as really diehard, famous, my hero libertarians say that I think is slightly confused is to oppose drug testing of employees. Okay? We think that labor markets work reasonably well. People get paid their marginal products because of competition in the labor market. So if companies started requiring lots of people to undergo drug tests, but it didn't have anything to do with selecting good employees or improving the profits or the productivity of those businesses, Competition would eliminate it, and, and if many employees really dislike it. But if, in fact, it's useful and companies choose better employees by taking advantage of drug tests, then again, that's what the market is doing, and it's not for libertarians to say that's good, bad, or indifferent. Okay, so we're not opposed to drug testing, per se, if it's a privately chosen activity. We would be against policies which impose drug testing on private employers. Um, next one I'll take on is term limits. It seems really appealing to say, problem with reason we have too much government is that we have all these legislators and governors, et cetera, who've been in office for decades. Okay? There's not much competition. They don't get challenged. 
They just give us more and more government. And so we should have term limits. You can only serve six, eight, 10 years or whatever, okay, and then you're out and someone new comes in. Okay? You think about it a little harder, it's not obvious that the term limit will give legislators a better incentive about the size of government. Why? Well, one, there's lots of ways to circumvent the term limits. Okay? You can be a legislator in one house okay, for 10 years, and then you can switch to being a senator and be in the other house for another 10 or 15 years, and then you can run for governor, and then you can run for president. So a lot of people can still be pretty much lifelong politicians. That aside, what is your incentive when you know you're term limited and you're in your last term? It's probably to enrich yourself as much as you possibly can. It's to vote for whatever is going to be useful for you after you're gone. Whereas, if you have to run for re-election again, you can't adapt too many policies that are grossly inconsistent with the preferences of your constituents because you won't get re-elected. So, a priori grounds, it's not clear that term limits are a sensible thing. A different way of saying it is, term limits are a limit on people's freedom to elect the same corrupt idiots over and over again if that's what they want to do. We believe in liberty, then term limits don't seem like they quite make sense. Turns out there's also lots of evidence, okay? And the evidence is unambiguous. Term limits are associated with higher levels of spending, higher levels of taxes, bigger budget deficits. So if the evidence came back showing that these term limits really help shrink government, okay, then you maybe have a hard conversation about how to balance the liberty to elect you know, corrupt idiots versus okay, not wanting to get more government. But in fact, it seems to be a lose-lose. And so term limits is not something that we should particularly uh, glom onto. Okay, let me talk about um, driver's licenses. Okay, so another aspect of trying to be a consistent libertarian is, and, and of being persuasive and getting people to take us seriously is maybe we have to be careful about ranting against things which seem innocuous to almost everybody like driver's license. So what's the cost of the fact that you have to have a driver's license to drive a car? It seems like it has to be pretty trivial. After all, we would want everyone to sort of know the rules of the road and you'd be obeying the same rules to avoid accidents. You only spend $100 for your driver's license. It's a nuisance every five years when you have to renew it. It's kind of useful as identification in some settings, even settings not created by the government. So maybe driver's licenses are innocuous. Okay? But okay, there's not a compelling argument. Okay? Insurance companies and other private mechanisms would probably force people to learn the rules of the road, even if the government were not requiring you to have a driver's license. And there are always unintended things that nobody thought about when we first started having driver's licenses. So what's the issue for driver's licenses? National ID card, exactly. Okay. The federal government has now said we want to make all states have driver's licenses that have a certain kind of chip that is readable and usable and compatible with the federal government system. And so now we basically have a national ID card. And libertarians, I think, are rightly more concerned about that than just about the nuisance of redoing your driver's license. And who knows what mischief that national ID card were due. So some things that seem innocuous that we're just going to ignore for the sake of trying to get along, you know, sometimes we actually have to speak up about those uh, as well. Uh, six minutes. Right to work laws. I don't like right to work laws. I think libertarians are pretty divided. Right to work laws says that you can't be made to join a union. 
as a condition of working for a given firm. But if a given firm and a given bunch of employees are willing to enter into that contract, then why isn't that just a voluntary contract? A right to work law is actually interfering with the right for people to sign whatever contracts they want. And so to me, libertarians should be opposed to those and say the government should take no stand on what types of contracts actually exist uh, in, in that marketplace. Um, uh, let me hold the question for. Oh, vaccinations. Um, so yeah, this is sort of a little bit like the driver's license. Remember Ron Paul, Rand Paul got himself in trouble by complaining about required vaccinations, uh, hinting that they were, could be viewed as a plot by the central government to infect everyone with some, you know, like one of those movies where everybody turns into a cyborg or something, whatever, because the government has taken over control of your, your brain function. So I don't think that was such a crazy thing Okay? Partially, if you're required to get vaccinations, it legitimizes this view that vaccinations lead to autism, despite the fact that there is really zero evidence for that. The study that claimed there was effects on autism from vaccinations, A, had eight people in the sample, and it turned out they were fake. Okay? The, the author of that study had created, had specifically changed the characteristics of those eight people to make it look like there was a correlation even though you can't really establish a correlation with, with eight observations, okay? Um, but there is, an, so there is an argument that says required vaccinations do generate some backlash, and there's an alternative, which is free vaccinations. If instead of saying everybody has to be vaccinated against the standard childhood diseases, you simply make sure that it's available for free to every parent and child regardless of income, you're gonna get you know, something like 90 to 99% of the effectiveness, okay, and without creating this sort of un unintended uh, side effect of making people uh, worry that you're infecting them with some dread disease. Okay, we can come back to some others and questions if people uh, are interested, but let me talk about one other thing before I wrap up. A standard critique of libertarianism, especially consequential libertarianism, is we're assuming that everybody's rational, okay? And a lot of people say to me, yeah, in a world in which everybody was a hyper-rational uh, homo economicus, yes, of course, libertarian policies would make sense because people take care of themselves pretty well. You don't need the government for anything. But in fact, we now know there's this whole literature that says people make systematic mistakes in all sorts of settings called the behavioral economics literature or the psychology and economics literature. Okay? But I want to say that that claim that our position relies on assuming rationality is completely false. It does not assume markets are perfect, that consumers are rational. It just assumes that those, it, it claims that those things are better than the government. Remember, the government is made up of people, so it's gonna do irrational, behavioral, sort of misguided things in setting policies. Okay? And more broadly, interventions are likely to harm especially the people who are not as swift, who are not as rational who are the behavioral people. Think about drug prohibition and consuming drugs. If you consume drugs in a legal market, you're almost never going to accidentally overdose. You might overdose if you deliberately take too many or you're just you know, uh, experimenting in, in a stupid way, but it's going to be extremely rare, as it is in the alcohol setting, because you always know what dosage you're getting. But under drug prohibition, you frequently consume something that you don't know what you're getting. You don't know the potency and the purity. And so many more people are harmed. 
Who's going to be especially harmed by that aspect of drug prohibition? The non-rational consumers, the rational ones say, I don't know what I'm getting if I go to the, drug, the illegal drug market, so I'm going to have alcohol instead, or I'm going to stick with my regular supplier rather than ever take drugs from a source I don't really know well and things like that. But the myopic people, the irrational people, they will really get badly affected. Think about all the policies that are meant to protect consumers in financial and other world. Okay? Basically, they're all complicated. Okay? The tax code and all the rules about finance are complicated. If you're a rational consumer, you figure that out, you end up getting a better return, you do better for yourself by taking advantage in some cases of all the complication and mess. If you're an irrational consumer, okay, you're going to be much worse off okay, because you're not going to figure out okay, what all the tricks are, how to optimize uh, your Social Security start date, how to optimize your taxes, and all that sorts of thing. Education subsidies are often justified as helping myopic, irrational people who don't realize that an education would really make their incomes much higher. But those same myopic, irrational people are going to listen when everybody says you always should get more education and not think about the opportunity cost of being in school. They're going to be the ones who don't think about the fact that they have to repay the loans and that that's going to be expensive. So the rational people, if their education subsidies, will take up those subsidies and get more education if and only if it's in their own interest. But the irrational people are sometimes going to get too much education because they've been sort of persuaded into that by the fact that it's been made to look cheaper okay, than it actually is once you take into account uh, all the effects. Okay, so my takeaways on consequential libertarianism. One is consistency. We're advocating for small government across the board. We're every bit as skeptical of the left and the right. We're every bit as skeptical of interventions, whether they're economic or social or foreign policy or whatever. Okay. Uh, another theme, going back to basics, as illustrated by the same-sex marriage discussion, is frequently very useful because it helps uh, illuminate what the, what the key issues really are. Okay. We should be humble. There are a lot of things we don't really know the answer to. We have reasonable instincts. We have a lot of good things to bring to the t discussion because the big government types are frequently just assuming they know the answer and they're just as unhumble as we sometimes are. But we should think about that and try to take it into account. Um, we talked earlier, slides about the efficiency equity. So my 30 seconds, as we've said a bunch of times in the last two days, libertarianism is a hard sell. It's always going to be a hard sell. I don't think there's any magic bullet so I've presented one way of persuading people, one way of thinking about it, but absolutely I would think all of us embrace all the different approaches to try and persuade people to embrace uh, our views. Overall, as we've said a bunch of times, libertarianism is not doing so badly. Another example of that we didn't discuss is the fact that we had the former Soviet Union, which is now much freer, despite the fact that it has huge problems, countries like uh, communist China that are much freer, that have a lot of capitalism despite ongoing problems. So things could be much worse, and through most of history, they have been uh, much worse. Okay? So hang in there, keep trying, and thank you very much for listening. Thank you. <laughs> Questions? So I don't think in all cases you've um, presented the most, the, the best argument for the other side when you're when you're talking <laughs> about things, and I'll give you an example. Simple example was the same-sex marriage one. 
Um, you said that it's about preventing certain people from getting married. Well, standard marriage prevents people from getting married too. Close relatives, young minors, et cetera, are not allowed to get married. But the same-sex marriage issue is not about that. It's about what is marriage. So my American Heritage Dictionary says that marriage is the relationship between a husband and a wife, and a husband is a male spouse and a wife is a female spouse. Now, my dictionary, it's almost 50 years old, you know, so maybe it's out, out of date. But that's the question is, what is marriage? Not about certain people are not allowed to marry. Okay, so let me take, tackle that first. Uh, you said a bunch of interesting things. First, your definition is very different than the one I found from an online dictionary. I thought the one I went to was Merriam-Webster. Second, when I first did that and put it in a slide for my class that I teach on this topic, it said it's a contractual relation. It didn't say it's between a husband and a wife. It didn't use those terms. It said it's a contractual relationship entered into by a man and a woman. And then I was updating the slides a few years ago after the Obergefell decision, and I looked it up again, and Miriam Webster has changed. It said it's a contractual relationship entered into by two people. Okay? So I think the contractual part is exactly part of the definition. Now, I agree lots of people use the term to mean something additional, or maybe even instead, uh, religious ceremony and things like that. So in libertarian land, those two things would be completely distinct. Okay? Even if the government were providing something which is this combination of contracts, contractual relationship, it would have some word for it, it would supply it to anyone who wanted it, whether it's two people, whether it's five people, whether it's 50 people, okay? churches, other groups, could perform ceremonies that they wanted to call marriages. And they could say, you could only be part of our church or our religion if you agree to have this type of religious ceremony and follow these rules. But it's a completely separate issue. Last thing I'll say about that is, both sides agreed on one thing in this debate. They agreed the fight was over the word marriage. Okay? Because the pro-same-sex marriage crowd was not going to be satisfied, as it shouldn't have been, with they were going to get civil unions and opposite-sex couples were going to get marriage. And Many people who are opposed to same-sex marriage would have been happy to grant civil unions to same-sex couples, but they didn't want to let them use the word marriage. That's why government just shouldn't have been in the business in the first place. Yeah, at the back. Yeah, um, climate change. Uh -huh. Since, uh, according to data, average global temperatures have not risen over the last 20 years, even though carbon dioxide concentrations have, and the IPC has specifically come out and said, extreme weather events do not have any relationship to global warming. And since if the whole Arctic ice cap melted, it would not raise the water level in the oceans at all, why is a consequentialist approach not to challenge the science and forget about trying to figure out what kind of tax they should impose on us? So I certainly have no objection to challenging the science. And Cato has people who do that, and lots of other people do that. Um, I simply wanted to make a conditional statement that if we're going to talk about the claims for the carbon tax, we should insist that it be done in that framework where it's revenue neutral and where it comes with the dismantling of all the other crazy stuff, partially because, as we saw in the Washington State case, that means even the environmentalists won't vote for it. Um, but. I'm completely with you. The evidence for the science is much less convincing than it's made out to be. 
The evidence, as I mentioned, that it's harmful is much less convincing than it's made out to be. So I have no objection to what you said. Yes? I'd be interested in hearing a libertarian comment on civil commitment. So I forget why I put that one up there. I tend to be, I think we should be very skeptical of civil commitment because, just to explain my terms, what I mean is someone has not committed a crime, someone has not actually done something that's dangerous to themselves or others yet, but based on observing them, it looks like they may well be at risk of doing something like that. And you might, as with very good intention, still want to put that person in a setting where they cannot be out in the public, they can't get access to guns, they can't hurt other people. So it's a perfectly reasonable instinct, but I think it opens up an incredible slippery slope for some government to say everybody's a libertarian, is a threat to society, so we're going to stick them all at some institution. <laughs> Hi, thank you for your time and ideas today. I very much enjoyed all of your talks. And I'll preface my question by saying I'm a practicing Catholic and very pro-life, so I'm going to be asking about abortion. But I thought it was really interesting how you made this argument that it establishes a dangerous precedent and that it's a slippery slope for abortion restrictions because this is actually an argument I make in favor of pro-life policies. And so I guess the question I would ask is how would you respond to an argument that it establishes a dangerous precedent to say that a parent has no positive obligation to an unborn child for which he is responsible? I don't know what that means quite. Does so it mean I, to say I, a, a parent has a... First of all, the phrase unborn child has always struck me as confusing. If it's unborn, then it's not yet a child. It's almost an oxymoron. Unborn fetus. But you say the positive obligation it has, where did that obligation come from? Who created that obligation? So I guess maybe... And, um, but more consequentially, what are the implications of trying to enforce that as an obligation. So I guess maybe it would first help to establish whether or not you agree that if the, the child is, is born, in that case, if it is a child by your definition and standard, does a parent have an obligation to provide for that child? Would uh, the parent be liable for or criminally negligent in the case of negligence for that child? Does, do the parents have an obligation to provide a certain amount of care for a dependent child that is under the age of, say, 18 or whatever socially determined age we have determined. They do under current law. Should they in libertarian land? In libertarian land, yes, sir. <laughs> um, okay, so I like to think through all the extremes. I haven't thought about this one before. So the first thing I'd say is the vast majority of parents will take on that responsibility even if there's no law. You know, the vast majority of parents did that before there was any organized society or any laws. Obviously, the parents or the mothers of dogs and cats and billions of species take on that responsibility without any laws. And second, I'd say that having such a law, an affirmative law, is going to create some complicated situations. Think about um, Christian science. Can a parent? choose not to take their child to get health care, okay, because under your religion, it's wrong to use standard uh, medicine. Okay? And should a parent, doesn't a parent have an affirmative action to read to their children, to pay for them to go to a more expensive school, to, I think once you start to have such a policy, there's a whole bunch of other questions 
that you might be led, led to, a bunch of things you might say parents have to do, and giving the government the power to say exactly how people should raise their kids could be maybe is pr pretty dangerous and pretty scary. So I don't know. I, I, will, I will take the fifth on that for, the, for now and, th and, th and think about it some more. I appreciate it. Thank I, I would like to ask a follow-up question basically on that. Sure. Uh, an old Jesuit professor once told me that the vagina must be an absolutely wondrous organ. On one side of it, you're human, and on the other side of it, you are not. As a physician, and not as uh, an ethicist, but as a physician, how is it possible that I can be in a room with that, a physician aborting a 24-week fetus and another physician in the next room trying to save the life of a 24-week fetus? And if, as the court spoke about, it was based upon the uh, ability to, to you know, to live after the birth. It changes all the time. Yes, I agree with that. And lastly, it, it seems to me also a conundrum that in many states, two felonies of murder could be charged if you killed a pregnant woman. But at the same time, you could abort that woman. I, I don't understand the logic or the, you know, the lack of thought in the process that has gone on. I was wondering what you felt about the vagina. You had said it's an unborn. Sure, I'm sure as hell not answering that question. <laughs> but, but you had said it was not, it, it's, it's not a child. It's, it's not a child. That was your first remark. An I'm unborn saying, child is not a child. I didn't assert that. I said it's a question. It's unclear what one means by a child. It's unclear what one means by life. But most importantly, and the same response, I'm giving the same response to all the hard issues you raised is we can't, I don't think it's constructive to just think about taking a stand on those. The question is taking a stand on whether having a law that outlaws physician or, or anyone okay, terminating a pregnancy is a good law. Okay? And if you're going to have such a law, you should also think about are we going to enforce that law? Are we going to jail women? Are we going to jail the doctors and the nurse and the booking nurse and everybody else? If you're not, then you're creating some hypocrisy and disrespect for the law. Then you're going to end up treating different people at different income levels very differently. So I'm only taking a stand on the law, okay. Okay, not on okay, those endogenous things, which I find too difficult to think about. I, I agree with you on that aspect. However, I think that all of the issues that I just raised are really not being raised in terms of how we look at the diversity well, that may, of opinion. That, that, that may be. I'll say just one other thing, which is, despite what you might assume from what I've said so far, I think we'd be far better off if Roe had been decided in the opposite direction. Okay? And if it were all left to the states, now, as a resident of my state, I would vote vehemently in favor of legal abortion, but I would completely respect people's choice to vote in the opposite direction and of other states' decision to restrict abortion to a partial degree or to a full degree. My guess is we'd have a country in which abortion availability was more or less exactly what it is now, okay, but with much, much less acrimony. So, for what that's worth. Yes? There's, uh, 
two topics I, I would like to talk. Uh, first, uh, regarding drug abuse and uh, drug use uh, and prohibition and uh, vaccination, uh, mandatory vaccination. There is a common answer to this kind of question that is, we are doing it to avoid harm to society. Drug abuse, drug abuse leads, people say, leads to violence, leads to robbery. I'm not that into that, but in vaccination, the problem is, if I, if I had the right to vaccinate or not vaccinate my children, and he get infected, and my, uh, my friend, my neighbor, has a children that cannot be yet vaccinated, and gets in contact with these infected children, he will die. So at the end of the day, pandemics, epidemics, are caused because we are, not, we, ha we are not immune to this kind of viruses because we haven't been vaccinated. How can I get into my, how can I be, okay. at what extent am I free to infect you because I have the right to not vaccinate I, I, my children? Okay, I got it. And secondly, uh, well, you can. Let's, uh, do, let's do one and then uh, come back. So the claim that drug use causes violence is just yeah. not supported. Yeah. So an argument that we're protecting society by trying to reduce drug use is completely unsupported by any evidence. Drug prohibition generates violence by driving the markets underground and so on and so forth. On vaccinations, one interesting thing to do is to look up the rate of a whole set of diseases, polio, measles, mumps, diphtheria, blah, 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 okay? And plot that over time, and you'll see that the rates of infection of all those diseases have gone down dramatically. And then put a vertical line in your graph for the year in which the vaccination for that disease was invented or available to the public or started being uh, used. Okay? You will see no change in the rate at which those diseases were going away. You will find no evidence that those vaccinations played a major role. Second, as long as a large fraction of the population gets the vaccination, anyone who wants their children to be protected against the risk okay, can get the vaccination, even if some other people choose not to get it. So yes, there's sort of an externality in that you are going to be more motivated to get the vaccination if you know some other people might not, but you can fully protect yourself against the risk or your children against the risk, even if some people are not engaging the vaccination. Last thing I'll say is, I put that up there partially to be provocative. If you gave me a choice of repealing 10,000 policies you know, on my own, mandatory vaccinations against diseases for kids would probably not be in that list, but yeah. it, was, it was there to illustrate. Yeah. The second is about uh, term limits. Yep. Especially in presidentialist countries like, like mine or, or in Brazil, or term limits are a pretty important topic because when presidents stay too long in power, they start not only staying in power to, 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 to command, they start gaining more and more power through laws, through uh, the reforms, and at the end of the day, the state is so big and so powerful that when you want to take them out, they, don't, they won't live. So I understand that. I think that lots of presidents, you know, chief executives who've been subject to term limits and were accreting lots of power found ways to circumvent them, either by just erasing them or ignoring them or getting the Supreme Court of their country to rule them invalid or to extend them, or 
Putin did something like this. He first went from being president to prime minister and had his puppet be the president, and then he went back after the term limit was no longer at play. So I don't think the term limit is very effective in those sorts of cases. You could plausibly make an exception to the arguments and the evidence I discussed by saying a president has an unprecedented amount of power to use the various branches of government to modify the information you get, to bribe different people by paying subsidies to soybean farmers who are affected by Chinese tariffs. And so maybe the argument against term limits is weaker if we're talking about a chief executive as opposed to just a standard legislature. Mm -hmm. But even there, I'm not entirely. I would still be somewhat skeptical. But I agree it might be different. Oh, OK. Thank okay. you. <clears throat> uh, so just say so if you can't um, or don't feel comfortable with commenting on this. But for affirmative action. Given everything I've said so far, what else could you possibly ask? <laughs> well, so, so Harvard, of course, has been sort of in the spotlight for affirmative action ah. lately. And I was wondering. You know, if you don't think that uh, Asian American students should use the mechanism of the state to, to prosecute Harvard against admitting them, you know, what, what could you tell an Asian American uh, senior applying to college? Because it seems like they wouldn't be able to organize a boycott. You know, I don't think non-Asian students would necessarily join in on that and just might take the opportunity to have an edge on those students to get into Harvard. And it, might, it doesn't also seem like it's necessarily hurting Harvard's prestige and a meaningful way, so okay, what sort it's, of action? It's, it's Harvard's choice whether to har Harvard's prestige. Yeah. That's so, not a policy issue. So what, um, um, what So I think what, I mean, what, the short, what the short answer is that um, there are zillions of universities. A lot of them give students a much better education than Harvard does. So Asian Americans are not harmed in any meaningful way by having to go to Stanford or Caltech or Berkeley instead of going to Harvard. Okay? Um, markets work. There's a big competitive marketplace. So just as if one employer had some bizarre criterion about hiring you or people like you or some particular group, unless that employer is the only employer in your town or your state, you're not in any meaningful way uh, uh, affected. The libertarian position on the Harvard case, similar other cases, would be if ideally, there's no C Civil Rights Act, okay, so there's no Title VI, and therefore, Harvard as a private institution okay, can have whatever admissions policy it wants as a matter of policy. As a matter of whether that's a good policy, that's a completely different question. Okay? Now, in fact, there's just as an aside, there's an expert report written by a very well-known economist for Harvard, which claims that when you run the regressions appropriately, what you find is not that Harvard is discriminating against Asian Americans. It's discriminating against people who want to major in STEM. Okay? That is, humanities faculty wants us to have more humanities students, and Harvard is putting its thumb on the scale for humanities majors. Okay? And that disproportionately affects Asian Americans, because they disproportionately are saying that they want to major in STEM. So yeah. is that a good thing or a bad thing for Harvard? That's not a libertarian question. Will we think they have the right to do that? Sure, we think they have the right Thank to do Thank you. Uh, yes. Jeff, given, given your experience uh, studying drug prohibition, have you ever considered looking into the idea or uh, issue of lowering the US drinking age from 21 to 18? Uh, I have a paper about that. I've been arguing that for a long time. It doesn't seem like we're winning, although I think there's a constitutional opportunity to revisit it. The crucial court case, I think we mentioned yesterday, was South Dakota v. Dole, which said that it was constitutional for the federal government to encourage states to change their drinking ages from 18 to 21 by withholding, threatening to withhold highway funds. Then, in the first Obamacare case that went to the Supreme Court, 
Roberts and others said it was not constitutional, it was inconsistent with the non-commandeering clause of the Constitution. Federal government can't make the states do things that the states don't want to do. Okay? It was inconsistent with that to tell them that they had to expand their Medicaid programs. To me, that's exactly the same issue. So based on the new precedent established in that Obamacare case, okay, some states should sue again and try to get South Dakota v. Dole reversed. I mean, I think I'm not even sure 18 is the right age. It maybe should be zero, but it certainly should be less than 21. Jordan? Um, I haven't had time to Google um, all of the vaccines, but um, uh, polio rates clearly fell uh, in association with the introduction of the okay. inactivated followed by the uh, oral. And uh, that was an uh, absolute success. Smallpox has been eradicated. Uh, so there are clear data that um, uh, with a number of um, communicable diseases, the introduction uh, did. Now, there are a number of things such as tuberculosis that have, we don't have vaccines for um, um, and have had uh, dramatic uh, falls in frequency independent of any vaccine. So, so communicable disease in, of many forms can be made to go away uh, in the absence of uh, vaccination, uh, but uh, for at least a number of uh, uh, communicable viral disease, it's pretty clear that I think vaccines do work. Okay. I, well, I have a different assessment of the evidence, but we'll get it. We'll, but, but, we'll, we'll sit but, down but together. You, but you did challenge us to um, graph that. Yes, and fortunately, I did. I, fortunately, <laughs> I, I do not have to do it independently. There are, uh, there are graphs of that out there, and I'll be happy to share it. Okay. Thank you. Anybody else? Please. This, this was not on your list. Constitutional amendments. I'm opposed to constitutional amendments today because the intellectual climate is such that we cannot improve upon the Constitution. <laughs> That's sort of a messy one. I mean, I kind of agree we couldn't improve much with, with some, a few very specific exceptions about slavery and how African Americans were treated, right to vote for women. But overall, it would be very hard to improve on the interpretation of the original Constitution that makes sense to me and probably to most people in this room. And yet the current interpretation, like of the Commerce Clause, of the Takings Clause, and so on, bears no resemblance to that. So if a new amendment could in fact they get us to honor the original intent, that could be constructive. But I share your pessimism over whether that would actually happen. But I mean, that's why I'm not as big a fan of trying to fix things via the Constitution, via procedural policies, by having just the right institutions, because if that's not what people want, they get around those institutions. Thank you very much.